Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-332 of the Run Run Live podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Remember when I said we didn't get any snow in that big storm a couple weeks ago? Well, you can scratch that out, apply a little whiteout, and scribble over it because we've gotten a couple nice storms since then up here in New England, plus some pretty cold weather. Winter showed up, after all, and left me with some fluffy white water particles to move around, and it's uh, it's pretty chilly, dropping down into the single digits Fahrenheit. I don't mind, it just puts a little ice in the beard for these long runs. My friends and I did a two-hour long run on Sunday morning, and it was minus nine degrees Fahrenheit when we started, and zero when we finished. That was a little bit rough. <laughs> I won't kid you, that was a little rough. By the way, kids, whiteout is a clever double entendre for snow and typing mistakes. You see, we used to put sheets of flat dead trees into complex mechanical devices that bashed tiny crooked courier font letters into place on the pages. And if we hit the wrong basher, We'd have to pull the whole sheet of squished dead tree out of the bashing machine and paint over that little misbashed bit with white paint, and it was called whiteout. And then we'd have to rebash it with the correct courier font basher. It was all quite medieval. And then in, in the late 1980s, Wang Labs invented word processing, and all the courier bashers went onto the scrap heap which was good for me because the only class I ever got a C in was typing. Anyhow, today we chat with Kim Jones, who was an elite marathoner in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a super pleasure to talk to her and hear about her amazingly successful and well-balanced marathoning career, Uh, especially because she had a fairly difficult early ride in life. And she's written a book about that as well. We talk about it a little bit. In the first section, I share a post I wrote on what to expect from a 24-hour relay race. Because somebody asked me that question, so I wrote a post on it. 
In the second section is a summary of an interesting book I just finished on reinvention. I've been training well. I've been hitting some decent distances with some quality, some volume. Coach has me working on some core strength and yoga. I really need it because my hips and glutes and quads are all weak and my balance is crappy. But hey, I'm an old guy. (laughs) Goes with the territory. Nothing hurts. And I'm progressing fairly injury-free at this point, and I'm probably up into the mid-40 miles a week range in volume, and I feel pretty good. Uh, We're two months out from Boston, and the hard work is about to begin. My travel and work schedule hasn't been that intense, so I've been trying to get a lot of sleep. I've been eating mostly fruits and veggies, and I've been trying to maintain a beer breakup for over the last few weeks, and I feel strong, even though it's cold outside. I try to get out on the roads to do my runs because that little bit of sun goes a long ways towards chasing the winter blues away. Recently, I've had a few people ask me about Buddy the Old Wonder Dog, because I used to talk about him a lot, my running partner, and he's doing fine. He's old, and he doesn't get around with the same pop that he used to as a pup. He's got those fatty lumps, which are some sort of fatty benign thing that old dogs get. And he's still lean and healthy at 12 plus years old, but his hips bother him if he does too much. And he still manages the stairs and does everything he needs or wants to do. He apparently sees and smells and hears as well as he ever did. And there's only one other dog in the neighborhood left from his cadre. All the rest are gone now. His friend, the Sheltie, took the long trip just last week. On the weekends, he rides around in my truck with me to do errands. He just likes to get out and watch the scenery go by. And when he was younger, I had a truck with a sliding window in the back of the cab, and he'd sit with his rump on the armrest and facing backwards and stick his head out the back window. (laughs) And more than once, I'd look in the rearview mirror to see people in the car behind waving and making faces at me. I still take him out for easy runs, but not more than once a week, typically less than 10K, and only on trails and only easy runs, super easy runs. The cold weather helps. He likes running in the cold, but he doesn't like the snow so much because it gets stuck in his paws. I just have to be careful not to overdo it, or he'll be stiff and sore and limping around the house the next day, and that's kind of pitiful. He still gets cabin fever if I don't take him out, at least for a walk every now and then. He's cantankerous and will decide to walk up behind me or anyone else who happens to be in the house and bark right in your ear while you're working, while I'm working at my desk, and he'll scare the bejesus out of me. Or he'll just sit and stare at me like he's trying to levitate me with the force. Mostly, he just hangs around the house, looks for crumbs, and sleeps. He likes my bedroom and my bed because it's a high vantage point on the second floor and he can keep an eye on the front yard while he's snoozing and kind of pretend like he's doing his job, right? And this does mean that I'll find my pillow a bit tainted with the smell of dog butt and I'll wake up with a beard full of border collie hair. There is hair everywhere in my life. We got him a big bed in the living room, one of those big round cushiony things, and he sleeps on that while we watch TV. And he does this funny thing where he digs in it before he lies down. I don't know what that's all about. And he's always at the door to greet us when we come home, looking for a cuddle and a hug. 
has been quite quite a ride since I smuggled that eight-week-old shy little puppy home in a bag under the seat in front of me from a farm in Tennessee where I am in my life. I don't know if I'll get another dog, you know, but it's hard to imagine not having the comfort and the companionship in my life. Maybe I can get a time-sharing agreement. Maybe I can rent Buddy out, make some money off him because he's still pretty good at, at giving hugs. He likes to give hugs. So I was watching TV this week and it was it was cold in the house super cold. So I scooped up my old puppy who was snarfing around the rug at my feet compulsively looking for crumbs. So he may be old and smelly, but he still makes a great blanket on a cold winter's night. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Mastering the 24-hour relay race. So you've been recruited to be part of a 24-hour relay race. Now what do you do? How do you train for something like that? What can you expect? What can you prepare for? There are many popular overnight relay races and relay series now. The basic layout for these races is that you collect a team of runners and take turns running a course of 200 miles or so. Most average teams will take 24 hours, plus or minus, to cover the distance, hence the 24-hour relay moniker. What this means is that your team will be running, sleeping, and eating continuously through the course of a day and a night. This brings interesting physical and logistical challenges. Those physical and logistical challenges are the fun part of a 24-hour relay. There's a high probability that something will not go according to plan, and hilarity ensues. Mix in screwed-up plans with sleep deprivation, extended effort, and lack of showers, and it gets really fun in a summer camp kind of way. Typically, a 200-mile relay race will have a 12-person team that rotates across 36 legs. Do the math, and this means the average relay participant on a 12-person team will run three times at an average of 5.5 miles per leg or somewhere around the 15 to 16 miles total, all told, across 24 hours. The relays typically have designated harder and longer leg choices to accommodate different abilities among the team. Your strongest runner will get the longer and more difficult legs, and someone else will get less. And no matter what happens, you'll be running a minimum of three times over the course of 24 hours. Your first leg will typically be during the day of your first day. Your second leg will typically be in the middle of the night. And your third leg will be in the morning of the second day. If everything goes to plan, a big if, you'll get somewhere around nine hours of rest in between your running assignments. Piece of cake. So how do you train for a 24-hour relay? If you're in decent shape and running the relay for fun, it really shouldn't be that much trouble. You can run one of these on a decent base of 20, 25 miles a week with no issues. Run for 40 to 60 minutes, three to four times a week, and you'll have plenty of juice to complete one of these relays. There are 
a couple of quirks that you may want to test out in your training. The first unique thing is running in the middle of the night. You may want to schedule some of your training runs for an odd hour, like midnight or 4 a.m., just to see how that feels. The second quirk is running multiple times in short succession. If you want to test this out, you can schedule some two-a-days. Go for a run in the morning and then do another at lunch or go at lunch and then at night. See how it feels to run uh, on tired legs. Other than that, there's really not much else to it. You might want to practice running that second run of the day on gas station pizza or donuts, but that's another story. What do you prepare for? You may have noticed that I said, if nothing goes wrong, a couple times. <laughs> because something always goes wrong. And these are some of the typical things that will go wrong. Runners no-show, or they get injured or sick early in the race. Even if you have your full complement of two vans full of 12 runners, someone is going to not be able to run on race day. Maybe it's the flu, maybe it's a torn muscle, or maybe they just don't show up. But someone is going to have to run their legs. And the last 12-person relay I ran, we ended up with eight people on race day. And I had to run close to, I, well, I got to run close to 30 miles. It was a blast. If you have to run extra legs, you have two choices. You can either add legs together or speed up the rotation. If you add legs together, i.e. instead of running leg five, you run legs five and six, you run longer, but you get more rest in between. If you speed up the rotation, you may be running every four to five hours. I've done it both ways. And remember, there is an ultra team version of most of these relays where you can run a team of six. If you combine the legs, it boils down to three half marathons over 24 hours. But it makes the logistics much easier. <laughs> One thing to note, if you're running an ultra team and you lose somebody, it has a much bigger impact. The second thing is that runners will miss an exchange or just get lost. There's nothing sadder than watching a runner who has just blasted out their leg, wandering piteously around the exchange area, looking for someone to hand off to. And it happens. Especially with 12-person teams on some of the shorter legs, there's traffic or somebody takes a wrong turn. So before the race starts, have a team meeting, take a look at the course and see where those pinch points are, those short legs, and consult someone who's done it before, see if there's any risky bits, and then decide what you're going to do if there's no one at the exchange. Does your runner wait or do they just keep going to the next exchange? Another thing that will typically happen is someone will get injured. They'll pull something. And someone's bound to pull up lame with a sore knee or a hamstring during all this enthusiasm and hilarity. And it makes sense to pack enough tape or, you know, whatever else you need to fix somebody up so they can limp through another leg. Another point you want to remember is you won't get enough sleep and you won't eat that well. And it doesn't matter how well you plan. You just don't get much sleep during one of these events. And typically you're riding in a car or a van and you'll have to catch what sleep you can sitting up. So do whatever you have to do to be prepared to sleep sitting up in a moving car. Eye shades, earplugs, maybe your favorite teddy bear. Typically people bring enough food, but for some reason you always end up eating inconsistently and crappy with all the running and driving. 
if there is some go-to staple that you like that will keep you going, like smoothies or Cliff Bars, make sure you bring those with you and be prepared. Another thing is the weather is incredibly unpredictable in these things. I have run at midnight in the driving rain. I have run a 10-mile, 35th leg directly into the teeth of a 70-mile-per-hour wind and rain. You never know what you're going to get in these races. You can't control the weather, and you just have to roll with it. And it's frankly, it's part of the fun, part of the adventure. So pack a lot of clothes. <laughs> pack clothes for every occasion. At minimum, you'll need three complete changes of clothing, including some foul-weather gear like a rain shell, jacket, gloves, a warm hat, all that stuff. Bring it and pack for a broad range of temperatures and conditions because the weather can change while you're on the course. Make sure to pack some anti-chafing lube as well because as you get wet, things will start to rub. You're going to have to run again, and if you get chafing, it can make that last leg fairly uncomfortable. And finally, this is my best tip, by the way, buy two or three cheap beach towels from your favorite big discount store, and these will cost you less than 10 bucks, so you can abandon them as needed without remorse. And they can be used as towels, sleeping bags, impromptu pillows, big towels. While you're in the store, see if they have any cheap blankets as well. You may not want to keep these when you're done, so don't bring anything you're emotionally attached to. And finally, bring three to five big trash bags, plastic trash bags to put your wet, stinky stuff into. Otherwise, the van will start to smell horribly. So how should you execute the race once you're in it? Well, you got to pace yourself. If you ever look at the team pictures from one of these relays, you'll see a definite pattern. For the first legs, everybody's smiling and crazy, happy, and jumping around. For the second leg, everyone looks miserable and sleepy. And by the third leg, people are back to being happy, and they look like they're ready to be done. That should tell you how to pace yourself. Most people will spend their energy on the first leg and then suffer through the second. The basic emotional and energy arc is going to go from high to low and then back to high at the end. So just be prepared for that. And take it easy on that first day. Pace yourself. Don't go all out on that first leg. Save something. Secondly, you want to sleep when you can and eat when you should. You may not feel like sleeping, but you'll eventually regret missing the opportunity. If there was one thing I'd say the ultra teams do better than the 12-person teams is that they sleep when they're not running. The cadence is run, eat, sleep, and repeat. Understanding that, you want to pace yourself accordingly. When you finish your run, eat something, rehydrate, then sleep whether you feel like it or not. It may seem overly simple, but that will save you some misery as you progress through the 24 hours. And finally, guys, have fun. It's not brain surgery. Overall, these 24-hour events are not intended to be competitive per se. They're intended to be fun. So have fun. Don't be grumpy. Be that person who's singing the songs in the van. Wear your fancy dress costumes. Paint the van. Have fun. You're part of a team. There will be some potential friction when you bring different people together. Roll with it. It's supposed to be fun. Take the high road. Give encouragement. Help where you can. Smile. Be a good teammate. Life's too short to waste on internecine van conflict. 
Be a leader. Make it fun for everyone. Cheers. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Kim, you're back? I am. It's it's a pleasure to meet you and finally talk to you. I mean, I've talked to so many people from, you know, the era of marathons when I grew up, you know, which is like the 80s and the 90s. And for some reason, I never uh, I never talked to you. So I'm excited because, you know, I always think of like Joni and, and you know, uh, Uda and those kind of people. But I, I never uh, thought to, to talk to you. So it's, I'm very excited to talk to you. Well, I appreciate that. It's nice to talk with you and um, learn more about you as well. Yeah, so I got your biography here, and uh, it's really amazing what you accomplished when you were racing in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, where you still hold the record for the U.S. female marathoner with 17 performances under under 233, and uh, yes. you came in second in, se- second in a bunch of the majors, and and won some marathons, and it was, uh, you had a good run, as they say. Yes, I did, and it was a great time to be an elite marathoner, and the uh, challenges were incredible, and there were a lot of, a lot of Americans running well at that time. Yeah, it was, it's funny, I talked to, um, not an American, but I talked to Steve Jones a couple of, uh, I guess maybe a couple months ago now, and it was an interesting point in time where there was a really strong elite marathon core from the United States and, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand and the UK and the Nordics and the Africans hadn't shown up yet or they were just starting to show up. So it's kind of, you guys were in a unique place um, right before the, uh, the Africans sort of came in and swept everything to get to the next, next level. Yeah. And actually I was, I benefited from, you know, coming in a little later than Steve Jones and the others. I started my career kind of, I stepped it in the right moment because they kind of got everything going and got the attention and the Africans started coming in, you know, slowly, but surely, but I was able to run against a few of the the better ones, which was great. Yep. And there was some very strong women's marathoners in your Cadra as well, some of the people you raced against. Uh-huh. And actually what's funny is not is Mr. Jones, I call him Mr. Jones, Steve Jones, the world record holder at one time, um, is actually painting my house today. <laughs> he's a is painter and so yeah, and he has his ladders all set up and he's gonna walk in the door any moment. Well that's great. Yeah, I knew uh, my coach, Jeff Klein, had uh, told me that uh, Steve was a painter out there. So He's that's, very good. Uh, that's very funny. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I was reading one of your pieces on uh, your New York City Marathon in '89, uh, uh-huh. where you uh-huh. came in second, and uh, it was a really, I, I really enjoyed that chapter because you had you had gone into it, and I think that's a chapter from your book, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, because you had gone into it on very little rest, like four weeks rest after having raced another another marathon and right and you just had one of those great days that you have every once in a while you know where you're where you just were able to sort of leave your body and and execute the race in such a way that it was really really wonderful for you right it was it was one of those races like you said i was just i was on them i was in the moment and on um and in that that kind of zone that you get into when you're having one of your better races yeah, and I think that's something that people who don't 
race or don't train at a high level, they, they kind of miss out on because every once in a while you, you have these events that could even be training sessions where you just sort of leave your body and it's, it's right. very addictive. It's very addictive and it's very wonderful. It's, you know, I, I think that the harder you train and the more you, know, you challenge yourself and the fitter you are, you can kind of slip into that zone um, more often than um, those who, you know, train, you know, at a, at a easy pace, you know, day in, day out. I think, you know, you just kind of get the endorphins going and you click in quite easily. So uh, we got the Boston Marathon coming up in a couple of months. You did very well at Boston in the early 90s. What do you think of that, you know, that race and that course and and how it's uh, changed over the years? I, I think it's wonderful that, you know, so many people are out, you know, competing and running in the marathons and, you know, the, the more the better. And I think, um, you know, it doesn't have its original noon start, which, you know, we enjoyed because it was kind of a traditional thing. But I can understand how they would, you know, change the time to the morning hours and, you know, do the wave start because I think that's definitely needed. And with Boston, I think a lot of a lot of marathoners go into it thinking, you know, it's, you know, downhill for the first half and then, you know, it's pretty tough in the second half. So they think, you know, maybe it's good to get you know, a little extra cushion, you know, as far as time and run it a little faster than they would normally run a marathon. And so I think that's what gets kind of a little um, sticky as far as planning your pacing for Boston. Um, But for me and for, you know, the many runners who have been successful and have, you know, had a good experience at Boston, have realized that, you know, to go out at the pace that you're capable of running and not, you know, charge down the hills and, you know, get that cushion of time thinking that you're going to slow down, you know, towards the end. Because what happens, I believe, in most cases is that you beat yourself up so badly that by the time you get to um, the top of Heartbreak Hill, which is mile 21, you start having a lot of problems. You kind of pounded your legs and you just don't have the muscle strength um, to continue on and push through to the end as fast as you normally would. So I think it's in Boston, it's very important to run a very even pace, even when you're running down the hills in the beginning. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. That's been my experience as well. And the flip side of that is if you can get to the top of heartbreak with your legs still under you, it's a downhill 10K from there. It's a very right, fast 10K from there. Right. In. And you feel pretty good when you're actually uh, reeling people in rather than people reeling you in towards the end. And I think that's a bonus, too, because it kind of gives you that boost of adrenaline and it makes the final miles actually quite exciting. Yes, it's a big psychological boost to be to be pulling people in. But I guess where you're running, you know, when you ran Boston, you came in second twice, you came in third once. Are you still reeling people in? Because there's, are there yes. that many people on the course up where you are? Yes, yeah, so it's incredible. There was one year, the year I actually ran my fastest time, there were probably 20 women in front of me. And, you know, it's because it's a, you know, it was a mass start. So everybody started, we ran with the men. I mean, so I'm not just rolling in the men, women, but also the men. And, you know, there was a good group of, um, like you said, core runner marathoners that were running fast. I mean, there were a lot of men running in the 230, 220 to 240 range. And, you know, I got to know quite a few of them during my marathons. 
And was that something, it seems like that was sort of your, your strategy when you were racing was to just go out at your pace, whatever you, you thought the race pace was for you on that day and let the race come to you. And you, and you'd eat up a whole bunch of people in the end. I'm a true believer in running off a perceived effort. I'm just, and you know, I know a lot of people wear heart rate monitors and, you know, I, I think they're a great tool, but I think in the end, um, it's about, you know, what you're capable of and, you know, what you feel and, you know, kind of you're monitoring your own body as well. I mean, it's, it, I think they work well together. Um, and the monitor kind of gives you an idea of where you are and what your heart rate is and, you know, you're in the zones that you're supposed to be running in at that time. But I think for me, especially, I think I have asthma as well, is I need to run off a perceived effort. And when I do, I usually run my best races. Right. So did you ever, you know, get into the situation where you you thought you had something left at the end where you wished you had, you know, gone a little faster or, you know, do you ever do that kind of second thing? second thought at the end? Um, I have. And and a good example of that is actually the Boston Marathon. The first year I ran it, I was scared to death because it was my first, you know, I had won the Twin Cities Marathon and had run a few, a couple of positive solid marathons, you know, in the 232 range. But my first Boston, you know, first international, you know, huge race, and it's such a traditional race that um, I just felt really a lot of pressure and I was nervous. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do exactly what my coach, Benji Durden, tells me to do. And he was always yeah. a true believer in running, you know, within yourself and, you know, pacing yourself and even negative, running negative splits, which is running the first half uh, slower than the second half. And so I did exactly what he said. And I went out and I ran, you know, well within myself and ran under 2.30 for the first time ever. And it was such a thrill. And, you know, I came running in strong, feeling great. And I almost caught up to second place woman who was about 20, 30 seconds in front of me. And, um, of course, Ingrid won the race well ahead of everybody. And I thought, well, you know, the following year I thought, you know, I ran a 2.29.34, I think. And I thought, well, next year I'm going to run faster and see what I can do. And so the following year, I went out and ran, you know, I thought, okay, if I want to run a 2.26, then I'll go out and run, you know, a little faster than that. And so I tried that and I finished and ran a a, a 2.30. So I ran slow. I ran about two minutes slower. The second half and felt terrible. And I, even though I ran pretty close to that time, I ran the 2.29, I felt terrible, and it wasn't a great experience for me. So I went back to running the, you know, perceived effort and running within myself yeah. in 1991, yeah. and then I ran my, I ran my PR of 226. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you were competing against uh, Rosa Moda and Ingrid Christensen, two very, very strong uh, athletes. Um, right. Love to, wa- to, to watch elites run because their, their form is so smooth and clean and easy-looking. Um, it's right. just beautiful to have that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, and it's always interesting because you think to yourself, right, did I just run out of race, right? If it had been a 28-mile marathon, would I have gone yeah. out right? Right. And yeah. one, there was one marathon where if I had more distance, I would have won, and that was New York City Marathon. I was catching up to Wanda Panfield from Poland. And mm. I was getting closer and closer to Wanda, and you know, it was like I was 
12 seconds, 30 seconds back, then 12 seconds, then 10, and we kind of counted down, and I got to the finish line, and Wanda was five seconds in front of me, but she was slowing, and I just almost, you know, ran into her because I was coming in so fast, and she had been slowing so dramatically. Yeah. I think if I had just maybe gone, run, run one of those miles a little faster, perhaps I would have won New York City Marathon, and I think that's the one race where I feel I might have messed up and not pushed it hard enough somewhere during the race. So could you see her when you were coming in, that last section yes. through the park? Yes, yeah. and she and was actually looking you... at me and turning around, and that's a true sign of somebody getting yeah. tired and, and worried about being passed. Yep, you never want to look over your shoulder in a race. you got to pretend that's like, right. you're, like, you, like you're still moving forward, right? That's right, and uh, actually yeah, it does so you... give the person following you a big boost if you turn around. They think, oh, she's tiring, and that kind of spurs them on and gives them a little bit of an adrenaline rush to try and catch you. Yep, exactly. You never want to look back because it doesn't matter. Right? No, it does. And, um, yeah, that, that's uh, that's tough, though. So did you put a little push on at the end and try to catch her and just ran out of race? Yeah, and I was I was running, I think the last mile was, you know, just I think my strongest mile. It, it just, I, I had a lot left. And um, But who knows? You know, maybe if I had run a little faster earlier in the race, then I wouldn't have been as strong towards the end either. So it's hard to say. Right. And it's all, like you said, it's always better to close with your best couple miles or, you know, to close hard than to, uh, than to struggle to the finish. Uh, always, right. always, I think so. you always wonder, you always wonder how to spend it because you only have so much. You got to figure out where to spend it. Right. 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 So this is, this is something else I noticed from, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, the elites used to race a lot more, it seems than they do today. You know, it seems like today, they may do one or two, you know, maybe some people do more. They may do one or two, but back when you guys were racing, you guys were racing a lot, and you were racing hard at a real high level, a lot. Right, and I think um, because I was a marathoner, I didn't race as much as the others, but um, I still raced a lot, um, and like my husband, John Sinclair, he, the runner's role, um, kind of put the king of the roads title on him because he um, was always running on the m- most um, popular and races in the country and doing well, placing in the top three. And um, right. he, he raced every, probably three times a month uh, and, you know, got in a lot of road races and he raced hard. And uh, I'm not sure how many miles he has now, but the one time he said that he felt he had 150,000 miles on his legs, and, and a lot of that was hard running. Yeah, and it's, just, it's amazing, because if you look at the way people are coached today, you, you know, coaches would just pull their hair out if you said you were going to go out and race three weekends a month as part of your training, right? Right, <laughs> right. and actually, I, for me, um, Benji, my coach, um, he kind of designed my plan after his career and how he approached his racing and his marathoning. I chose the marathon, so the races, the road races were more of a stepping stone towards, in my training, towards the marathon. And yeah. so I never I never peaked for my races like some. So I think if you were to peak for you know as many races as possible, you'd definitely be burned out by the end of the year and probably have to take the next year off. Right, so you'd use the um, use the you know like a local 10k as a as a tempo run or a or a race pace run or something as part of your right. training, which right? Is, which right. is fun. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and then I and then I race probably a major race once a month, so that you know I was kind of 
balancing a little bit better because I did have um, a family. I had two daughters and I was raising. And I, I wanted, yeah. you know, I, I absolutely balanced my time with them. So, the, you know, the running wasn't the, my number one priority, which I think helped me and gave, gave me a different perspective in my training and racing. And I trained hard and I raced hard, but it wasn't, an, you know, it wasn't my entire life. I, you know, I had other things going on and I could walk away from a bad race fairly easily compared to others because, you know, I had other things to do. And I couldn't just, I didn't just focus on the running. So that was helpful. Yeah. So you were able to find that balance in your, in your racing, um, which a lot of people struggle with. I think that's another reason why it was easy for me to, not easy to retire, but easy for me to be done when I did retire from running and just move on with in life and not um, have any regrets. And, um, you know, I just always had a full life um, doing other things. So when Benji had you training, what kind of mileage, you know, what kind of weekly mileage was he putting you through? Because the, the old timers of that period, you know, and the men anyhow were doing 100, 120 mile weeks. Yes, and a lot of women were too. Uda was doing sometimes 100 and she, we were at a press conference once and she, she mentioned doing 140 mile a week. And I, I was only doing 70 miles a week at the time. And I thought, what? And it, it almost psyched me out because, you know, I thought, I'm, I'm past trained to she is. And, um, right. I, but I, you know, everybody's different. And I, I was a low mileage marathoner. I didn't, when I started running, I jumped into the, actually, I won a race, 12K race, and won a trip to the Honolulu Marathon. And and I had only been running 30 miles a week. And I thought, well, I'm going to run the marathon and have fun and do a vacation. And um, my longest run had been 10 miles um, before, you know, training run, before I attempted the marathon distance. <laughs> and I ran, the, I ran the race. And it. I thought, you know, I'll just do what I can do and see what happens. And um, I ran the first half and run. Uh, 24, 24, and felt good, and came back and did another 124, 24, and ran an even split and felt good the whole way, and so I ended up running a 248 marathon. And so then Benji, uh, I got to know him. He thought that was pretty, pretty good, you know, for somebody running 30 miles a week, and he started coaching me. And he just told me that we're we're going to just take baby steps and slowly increase my mileage because um, you know we want to have a long career and enjoy the running and be the best I can be in ten years from then. And you know I was twenty mid twenties at the time, and so we took it very slowly. The first year, I started working with him. I he bumped my training up to fifty miles a week, which was quite a big jump. But then it was 60, and I was running 70 miles a week when I ran my first um, 232 marathon. And by the time I placed second in Boston and ran my 226, I was right around 90 to 100 miles a week. And that was about mm-hmm. as, high yeah. as, as high as I went. Yeah, that's still a lot of miles. That's, you know, that's 20 miles a day. So Right. And, and what I did differently than others, and I think, um, I think this makes a huge difference because I took my recovery very seriously. Um, so like one day I would do a 20, here's an example, I'd do a 22 to 24 mile run and I would put some, you know, some moderate type tempo-y stuff in the middle of it, like maybe run an hour of it, you know, at my half marathon race pace. And then I would go out and run another eight miles at night. So I was getting in, you know, 30 to 
35 miles in one day. And then the following day, I would, t- I would run three to four miles as slow as I could go. And then you know, I would have four of those days where i just run as slow as I could go a week. But then the other three days, I'd put a lot of miles and a lot of intensity in those other three days. And so yeah. it kind of balanced out where, you know, if I were to run 10 miles on my recovery days or whatever, I would have definitely been running 120 to 140 miles a week. But I took those right. rest days and spent them, you know, that time with my girls, my daughters, and yeah. just, you know, had, had my real life. <laughs> Not yeah. the running life, but the, the real life. And that's what I used to call it, my real life. And so I, I balanced that, but it also helps me recover and um, enjoy my right. recovery days. Right, and probably helps you from getting injured as well. Because as easy as recovery runs are, you're still using the same muscles and tendons and joints. Absolutely, and I think, like you're right, it's so important. Recovery is huge, and I think recovery days are just as important as the hard days. So I, are, are you still running these days? I run almost every day, uh, between 4 and 10 miles a day. I run with my daughter. She lives about a mile away. We meet and she pushes me through some to, through some tempo runs once in a while. But you know, I I, I work I work hard on some runs, and I just kind of take it easy on others, and you know, run as I feel, and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's it's great that you can still enjoy it, right? And it's not not like a job, right? Right, right. It's kind of like uh, I need to get my run in, so I feel decent for the day. It's kind of one of those, um, you know, like doing any type of exercise. You want to do your exercise and kind of get that boost of adrenaline and then move on with the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a healthy, healthy lifestyle habit. A lot of the the links you sent me were chapters from your book that had been published in in Runner's World. And they were, you know, it's really, really compelling stuff. So this is uh, an autobiography? Yes. Yes, it's. I I started writing short stories. yeah, tell us a little bit about your uh, your book and where people can find it. I um, wrote the book um, oh, about in the 2010 through 2012 range. I mean, I'm really getting I had all the notes and I had some, you know, yeah. all the biographies, all my my running blogs and all of that. But it's not really just a running book. It's more about a, a book about my life and my struggles through life. And I feel that for most runners who have had trials and tribulations through their life. They found that running is their savior, you know, just a way to escape from, you know, difficult situations. And even today when I have a stressful day, the running does help me through uh, my hard times. And when I was writing the book, I thought, you know, I'm just going to tell the full story and show my daughters who are always asking questions about my family life, just kind of write the whole thing and let people know know the the full story I believe that I became a strong tough um, determined um, marathoner because I struggled through a lot in my um, younger days my father's words when he read a bible scripture to me he was very religious and was reading some article and he said that we, we need to rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering brings us perseverance perseverance character and then character hope and I laughed at him and I thought well, why would we want to you know rejoice in our suffering and so I kind of took it from there, and I you know I struggled through a lot in my younger days. And when I found running, it was my escape from, you know, a, a difficult life track in high school. The track, and I, I became a national, yeah, national champion. And then I went on to college, and then I went on to becoming, you know, a world class runner. 
and I had 11 siblings, and six of them um, passed away, and several were in prison and in jail or, you know, combination of both. And at one time, seven of my uh, family members were in jail at the same time in the same jail. Right. So it was it was like I you know I had all these different paths to you know to take to you know bring myself out of a dysfunctional lifestyle, and running truly saved me and uh, helped me guide me along. And so I wrote the story to show that running is a good thing and it has helped me and many others through some difficult times. Yeah, and that uh, it helps to get it out of your head and down on the the paper as well. It helps everybody, right? Right, and I received a lot of letters thanking me for telling my story because a lot of lot of runners and a lot of um, you know just mainstream readers are enjoying the book and have, can resonate with some of the things, some of my stories and some of the things that have happened to me because they have happened to them as well. You know, it was great writing it and you know just helping somebody else through some difficult times. It's nice to know that I was able to do that. Right. Well, congratulations on a on a life well lived so far. Um, and the book is called uh, Dandelion Growing Wild, and you can find that on Amazon, I assume. Um, yeah, Amazon is on the Kindle. Kindle right, as well. On, yeah, correct. It's on the Kindle, and it's uh, on paperback, and you can order it on Amazon. I'll have to get a copy myself. I'm going to let you go now because I've I've taken up far too much of your time today. But uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I always love to talk to people um, from that you know, era of marathoning that I grew up with, right? Um, right being from the right. Boston area, being from the Boston area, we get to see uh, the parade of personalities come through every year. Um, and it, you know, and if you're from this area, you know, it's, it makes the news, right? People talk about that. People know the, the sport. And, uh, right. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm always happy to talk to somebody from that time period. So um, I'm going to let well, you go. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The last word on power. Thoughts on reinvention. This week I read a book called The Last Word on Power, Executive Reinvention for Leaders Who Must Make the Impossible Happen by Tracy Goss. Now, this book was written in the mid-1990s when corporate transformation and re-engineering were all the rage. And the work does have overtones of those 90s themes, but it also has some useful and, dare I say, prescient ideas. The book is still a product of its time, though, with a lot of wasted words and repetition and lifeless prose intended to fit into the box of a 200-page business book which was the box of the time. Included is a super unfortunate photo of the author in full murder-she-wrote styling on the uh, dust jacket. (laughs) It is interestingly ironic 20 years later to see how a book about breaking out of paradigms, another big 90s word, was so successfully shoved into the publisher's business book box. But the ideas are solid. And if you allow them, maybe even life-changing. The first idea I will inadequately summarize as you have to unpack before you repack. The idea here is that if your goal is to reinvent yourself, then you can't start where you are. 
You have to go back and understand how you got to where you are and why. You have to go through a phase of self-analysis and self-awareness before you can begin the process of reinvention. The author calls this process discovering your winning strategy. Your winning strategy is how you got to where you are. It is that default approach to getting things done and getting ahead that has always worked for you. For example, we all know professionals whose winning strategy is to outwork everyone else. For each new challenge, they put their head down and bash away at it until it is conquered or they break. If you dig behind that winning strategy, you'll find a reason. I do it this way so as to. For example, I attack all challenges with hard work so as to prove that I am worthy. Eventually, you will tease out the rules that you are using to measure success or failure for yourself and your life. Your winning strategy helps you determine if you are winning at life or not. So this is uh, the first thing is to tease out this winning strategy. The second thing is to recognize that we are all working within some basic societal, personal, and business frameworks that she calls the basic human paradigm. The point is to recognize that whether you know it or not, you are operating inside a box of rules and expectations, some of which are your own and some of which are inherited from your environment. You're stuck in a rut. Unless you go back and understand the rut that you're stuck in and dig it up, you are destined to stay in that rut, going around in circles, working ever harder with your winning strategy, trying to win a game that is unwinnable. What is possible is defined by and constrained by your winning strategy and your existing frame. Your winning strategy plays by a set of assumed rules and is inside the box. Your winning strategy is essentially an effort to compensate for what is not possible. It makes the impossible, well, impossible, if that makes any sense. Once we have internalized the patterns of the past, we can start reinventing the future. So the next concept, which is quite similar, I found, to Buddhist teaching, is that you cannot control the outcome. What is going to happen is going to happen. You need to become comfortable with hopelessness. You have to become okay with the fact that nothing you do really matters. The rules are all made up. Nobody really wins, and we all end up in the same place. If you do this right, this process of giving up hope allows you the ultimate freedom. Once you have disconnected from the outcomes, you're free to focus on whatever you do with an unmetered passion and execute towards it without fear and without the constraints of the box. So you accept this hopelessness as a gift, understanding that all is out of your control. Accept this and follow your passions anyhow. Now you're starting to move in the direction of the impossible. Yes, this means freely putting at risk all that stuff in your life that you are working so hard to hang on to, and that's the hard part to put down. After you have successfully put down your old strategies and your old paradigms, after you have given up hope and become comfortable with letting go of what you have, then you can move towards reinventing an impossible future. So how do you move forward once you have all this self-awareness and peace of mind? The first step 
in the reinvention process is to declare. You stand up and you declare the impossible. You declare a new state. Declarations enable reinvention. We will put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Now you're way outside the box and you're on your way to reinvention. You will have to create and learn and execute all in new ways. You will have to invent a new frame to make this declaration a reality. And one of the interesting aspects is in the way the declarations are worded. I love the power of declaring, we are the future of. Think about what that says. You're inventing an entirely new future. When you do this as a leader, you create what is called a clearing. You create a space where the new invented future exists. And that draws other people into that clearing, accelerating the reinvention. It's the safe place of the new frame of reference. That's what you create as a leader. Another key message in the work was to stop trying to interpret everything. What happened is what happened. You can't really control what happened, so stop wasting so much time and effort on interpreting what happened. Instead, move towards the next iteration. Move from what happened to what is missing, what is the next step, what's next, to keep that positive momentum of reinvention. As part of your work in organizations or with people, you will be forced to make requests. When you make these requests, be careful how you word them so that your intent is quite clear. Even if your request gets denied or rejected, if they are well-worded and have good intent, they will make an impact. You can learn from the impact, recalibrate, and move again in an adjusted direction. If you feel stuck, if you have that little voice telling you that you are playing a small game and there must be something else, if you want to reinvent your future, give this book a read-through and internalize some of the concepts. To summarize the message, if you are serious about reinventing yourself, one, do the self-analysis to determine your winning strategy and why it has made you successful and how it is holding you back. Two, understand the paradigm or frame that you're operating within. See that box and how it is constraining what is possible. Three, let go of the outcome. Embrace hopelessness as a gift. Pursue your passion anyhow. Four, declare a new state of the future around where your organization, company, or personal passion leads you. Create and be a clearing for that new future that draws in others. Five, don't try to interpret the results and keep pushing towards what happens next. Six, make requests that are well-worded and have good intent, i.e., ask good questions, and learn from the impact that these requests have to recalibrate your reinvention trajectory. And seven, most successful people who you think are gifted are actually practiced. Practicing your reinvention process continuously will create that future. This is a methodology to shift from trying to predict the future or trying to control the future to declaring the future and causing it to come into being. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. 
Okay, my friends, put down that dog, brush off the hair, and get on with your life because we have bashed our way through to the end of episode 4-332 of the Run Run Live podcast. Hey, guess what? The audio version of my book, Marathon BQ, How to Qualify for the Boston Marathon with a Full-Time Job and Family, is an official audiobook on audible.com. How about that? Pretty cool, huh? So persistence yields favorable outcomes. Now you can use that Audible membership, you know, the one that some other podcaster guilted you into getting so that they could pocket 10 bucks. Now you can use it. Get my book. Speaking of podcast advertising, I'll give you some inside inside baseball information here. So I, I read an interesting article about this. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and many of them have, have advertisements in them. And I find that kind of super annoying. But the way they work is there's typically three places where you can put an ad in. And this is standard advertising stuff. It's called pre-roll in the front, mid-roll in the middle, and post-roll at the end. And you see this with the ads in the podcast. They're typically a 15-second or a 30-second spot, and they'll read a script from the the sponsor you know, this show is sponsored by, etc. So the way the podcasters get paid is by the thousands of impressions, or in our case, downloads. And the rates vary, but it's somewhere in the, you know, $20 per thousand range for a spot. And it really makes economic sense only for the large podcasters. So if you were curious, that's how it works. And here's my tip. Because of that, most of your podcast listening apps, I know the one I use, Podcruncher does, they have a feature that allows you to skip forward by X seconds by poking the appropriate button. So if you set the number of seconds to 10 or 15, you can cruise right by those 15 or 30 second spots and get on with the content. The podcaster gets paid and you don't have to listen to yet another Harry's Razor commercial. It's a win-win. On a more interesting topic, I have a conference back out in Phoenix on May 17th and 18th. And what I'm planning on doing is taking the following day, Thursday the 19th, I'm going to take it off. And I'm going to go up to the canyon, to the south rim, and I'm going to run down to the bottom and back. And it's about 20 miles round trip, and it's an amazing place. I've scoped it out. I know where I'm going. Even at a casual pace, we can get down and back in 8 to 10 hours, even if we're just strolling. So anyone who wants to join me, let me know, and we'll have an epic adventure. I'm trying to talk my youngest, who graduates the weekend before, into coming with me. Uh, Of course, I would still appreciate your support for my Team Hoyt campaign for Boston. The links are in the show notes. The the totally pre-roll, mid-roll, and post-roll ad-free show notes. Or just go to my website at runrunlib.com. One thoughtful bit of learning uh, that I got from the last word on power, that book I read, was the concept of impossible. The point is, to do the impossible, you have to rejigger your thinking so that it isn't impossible anymore. It's an interesting leadership hack While everyone else is looking at the situation, the challenge and asking what is possible, you can blow up the conversation by asking what is impossible.
It's similar to the big hairy goal concept that we've talked about. If the goal is big enough, it forces you to change your approach. By asking what is impossible, it forces you to rethink your thinking, your frame of reference, and your approach. By singularly setting the impossible as your goal, you're focused to figure out how to make it possible, and that inevitably is an entirely different path, an alternate reality. In the business world, if I look around, you can see, for example, Elon Musk's companies. He's going to commercialize space travel. He's going to reinvent the automobile industry. He's going to bring hyperloops to cities. Surely all of these things, if you ask the insiders, are impossible. And look at Amazon. They're going to deliver to you in an hour. They're going to fly packages to your door. Now, all these things are impossible. These impossible things may never become successful products or realities or services, but look at the innovation and forward progress and unique thinking that they unlock. That's the power of impossible. Look at your life, look at your work, look at your family. What have you decided is impossible? Go make it happen. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And remember, when I said, (laughs) see, I screwed up that early in the podcast. It's hard, you know?